Hello, everyone. Welcome to Beyond Babel. Uh, I do apologize for a late start. Uh, it was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it wasn't the dude's fault this time. No, it was definitely my <laughs> fault. Um, but welcome to our show. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I was in here panicking, waiting for Acer. I'm like, yo, how do you turn all this stuff on? <laughs> I was desperately, I missed the train. But anyway, um, so yes, I am Acer. Paul is one of our co-hosts. I'm the other co-host. I don't know why I said it that way. Um, and yeah, we're, this is a Jewish history podcast. So we basically are going all the way from the very beginning, all the way to currently and right now we're on the period uh 2500 to 2000 bce which doesn't feel like a lot but it it is <laughs> it really is uh last week if you missed it we went over the story of gilgamesh pretty briefly and then also briefly the tower of babel i say briefly it was a long episode but there's so much to these stories that we yeah. would need like a way years, too much. <laughs> yeah, years way, too, to way too much to unpack in, in <laughs> 50 minutes. Yes, <laughs> way, too, way too much. Yeah. Um, but these stories, you know, the, the, all of this will always be relevant as we, you know, do our little short trek through history. Uh, these stories will always come back up because they always relate. And, you know, everyone knows my theme now. I'm the archetype of the guy. So, <laughs> you know. Let's go. Yeah. And for anyone just tuning in, since this is our third episode now, um, I would like to shout out our Instagram page, which is at beyond underscore babble. Um, definitely follow us. We will, we post, uh, well, Nat <laughs> posts about uh, upcoming shows. So keep an eye on that. And just for anyone that is new to the show, just very briefly, um, Paul and I are both undergraduates, and I am a sociology, global studies, and German major, and, and Paul? I am a philosophy of something major. <laughs> of something. I haven't figured out that, that something yet. I Actually, I think I have. I've been leaning way more towards uh, the philosophy of cognitive science lately. Oh, that's uh, very fancy. Very interesting. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> it sounds really intense. <laughs> But yes, so to so jump. this morning. Oh, yes. This, this morning, morning, I guess we're going to. Well, last week, you know, we, we finished off briefly with Acer's uh, dissertation. <laughs> philosophy word, right? It is. <laughs> dissertation on uh, the Tower of Babel, which we didn't really get all the way through. But um, the Tower of Babel is kind of going to be a running theme, hence our name, you know, of the show. So we can always, we're always going to refer back to it because it's a. It's, uh, it's a compelling story, and it uh, really has a lot of significance within, you know, uh, human history and, and uh, the basis of why we are what we are today and, you know, all that jazz. But this week, we're going to fast forward a little bit, right? By what? Uh, well, we actually are say, going back oh, yeah, by, like, going, a thousand we're years. Gonna go back, <laughs> yeah. We're going to go back. We're going to, like, do a little re rewind, and uh, we're going to talk about... The, the flood stories, yes. <laughs> namely Noah. And then I have an, uh, an interesting take on that as well, something I found um, that goes even further back as far Ooh. as a flood story. So this week, Acer is going to introduce us to Noah and his ark. Yes, <laughs> Noah and his ark. <laughs> 
So together. Or, or should I say the arc? The arc, the one and only. <laughs> no, right. Uh, to give a little context about like this general period in history right now, we, for anyone that had tuned in to the first episode where we <laughs> where we talked about the early Bronze Age, at this point we are moving more towards the I think it's the Middle Bronze Age, the Middle Period Bronze Age that it's called, and this period of time is called the Intermediate Bronze Age. And so that takes place approximately 2500 to 2000 BCE. For context, um, for all like religiously oriented dates, I am using the Chabad calendar. <laughs> and so for them, they placed it. They what placed, does that mean? So Chabad is a Orthodox uh, denomination, I guess you could call it, of Judaism. They take things very, very seriously. And so <laughs> I tend to trust what they How seriously say. do they take very things? Very seriously. <laughs> they they sort of try to live their lives. Um, and all Jews, well, not all Jews, some, some Jews <laughs> to some extent do, but like Chabad tends to very much focus on like halakha and like really following God like to a very, some might term an intense degree, um, but there's many like Orthodox denominations. They all do things a little bit differently. Um, Chabad is just, their message is very much like trying to communicate to people that are, well, specifically Jews that are um, outside of the organization. So a lot of other Orthodox, uh, I guess, denominations are very more like insular. Like they're mm. not really for like, trying to spread like their specific flavor of orthodoxy chabad though is so they so have their whole site they, like, they stick try to interpret everything textually um, like strictly the text is what it is kind of a thing textually is a little bit of a confusing thing in Judaism because you like have... Are they a rigid type? Yeah, let's do a little crash course real quick yeah. on some yeah. said like Jewish stuff. So you have the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, and mm. the broader, uh, I guess, text would be the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is considered like the holy book. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like where God's message comes in and all this. However... There is a series of commentaries um, that are in different ways quite authoritative. So, like, mm -hmm. if the text doesn't say something specifically, but, like, a commentator, like, Rashi is, like, the biggest commentator. Like, if Rashi says, like, oh, well, the reason it says this is this, mm -hmm. generally that's accepted as true. Um, and so, like, it goes sort of whoever's, like, closest to the original, like, Israelite group tends to be more authoritative. And then there's also this idea in Judaism where the community kind of dictates what practice looks like. And so if the community generally accepts a certain authority as true, it's generally considered true. Um, and so we have the commentaries. Then, in addition to just, like, I guess, average commentaries, we have the Talmud, mm. which is the Mishnah and the Gemara, which is a whole other, there's a belief that that is the oral Torah. So that's like, that was believed to be passed down at the same time um, as, you know, the written Torah was. And then it ended up getting commentaries later on. So like the Mishnah would be the oral Torah. And then the Gemara is the commentaries on the oral Torah. Mm. And they were compiled when the Mishnah was written down, so was the Gemara. And then they were compiled in this 
huge, huge work called the Talmud. Mm -hmm. And so that is a whole... And so, like, from the Talmud, you get a lot of, like, halakha, you get the laws uh, in a lot of senses, um, and you just get more of a... It's it's like a series of conversations and arguments that um, different rabbinical authorities are having. This is like the period of like rabbinic Judaism, and they're having these conversations about like what does this verse mean, and if we apply it to our practice, like what extent is it? What does it look like? What are what are the things that we should be doing? What are the things that we shouldn't be doing? And so it's like, and generally there's a bunch of different conclusions of each thing and then of course like the community sort of decides which one's going to be the most authoritative and they go from there <laughs> so that's the Talmud then there's Midrash and um, Halakha is a form of Midrash so like Jewish law is a form of Midrash there's also a form of Midrash that is more like expanding um, this idea of like background information for the texts so it'll be like you'll have maybe a couple verses and with a midrash you can write that verse into like a story and like what happened before this verse what were what was going on during the verse what did it look like what was being said and and you know things of that nature and like anyone can write a midrash technically but there are midrash that are very authoritative mm -hmm. for similar reasons that certain commentaries are authoritative so there are things that are known to be true just because of the midrash, and yeah, it's because the authority that wrote it was very old, and like it's generally adopted by the community, and for a lot of different reasons. Um, so then there's that. Mm. <laughs> there are other texts too, but those are kind of like I would say the pretty important ones. So like when we talk about these stories, some things are going to be directly from the Tanakh. And some things are going to be sort of, like, additional texts from outside of that. And, like, mm -hmm. that deepens our understanding. There's another huge uh, body of work that's known as Kabbalah. And that is, like, the mystical mm -hmm. practice in Judaism. And Which technically no one knows but those who are allowed to. Yeah, there's yeah. a, a very long <laughs> tradition where you had yeah. to be, like, 40. Yeah. A 40-year-old <laughs> man well-studied in the Torah to yeah. even be offered or like to seek out um, that kind of knowledge but now it's pretty common because of the internet <laughs> yeah. but um but even a lot of them you know still don't accept those outside of that group don't accept those interpretations as even though you may say they are they won't accept it because you're not part of this group wait you who's I mean? they who are we talking about I can't remember the guy's name I was just listening to him when you introduced it to me uh, what was those books you uh, I wrote down? Starts with a Z. Mm, uh, the Zohar? Yeah. Mm. I was looking at them, and then there was this rabbi who I was listening to commenting on them, and he was uh, espousing that, you know, the interpretations that you'll find in here technically aren't true because they're not allowed to interpret it outside of can't remember the Hebrew name that he named, but he named the name. But uh, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'm like, hmm. So, yeah. so they have like a stronghold or on the interpretation. So even though the interpretation may literally, you may know the same, you know, you know the language, the Hebrew language. So if if I'm Hebrew and I'm reading it, am I reading it wrong because I'm not part of the group that's supposed to be or allowed to, you know, interpret it or disseminate it? 
it's so message. That's where it gets complicated because generally, like, so he, I'm assuming he's probably Orthodox, and there's certain mm-hmm. Orthodox authorities that people tend to follow. However, with Kabbalah, the whole, um, <laughs> the, the whole, I guess, interesting part about it is it used to be kind of general practice in Judaism. Like, people didn't necessarily know that they were practicing Kabbalah, but it was n- very normal. And so, like, there's a lot of prayers in Judaism, like the Amidah, that are, which is like a silent sort of meditative prayer, um, that are Kabbalistic in nature. Prayer itself is very, like, Kabbalistic in nature. And so... What ended up happening, just very briefly, we will talk about this on the show, um, but there is, there's this whole period of Haskalah, which is like the Jewish sort of enlightenment period. And during that time, people were trying to assimilate in European society. And so they started rejecting a lot of these like more mystical uh, practices because they wanted to be like, hey, no, we're we're not like backwards. You keep saying we're backwards. Look, we don't believe in this kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so they very much uh, were trying to do that. And they really tried to stamp out Kabbalistic practice to the point where it was almost very successful. It was actually Hasidism. Uh, so like Chabad is like a Hasidic group um, that actually with the Baal Shem Tov, he revived the Kabbalistic movement. And so now there's been multiple um, Kabbalistic movements outside of Hasidism that have really tried to bring these practices back into daily life. So you'll see even like reconstructionist uh, reform, like they are bringing back a lot of these practices into their um, rituals. Mm. So yeah, it was a whole it was a whole thing though where people were trying to reject that. But generally, like a lot of the works of like Kabbalah, it really focuses just on the Book of Genesis, and it mm. focuses on like what is the nature of God and, like, what is the nature of the universe? Why are we here? What are we doing? And it really, I think it really, like, enhances, like, the experience of the religion if you learn about it. Um, It's very dense and very complicated and it's written in, like, this weird Aramaic. A lot of the text, like, the Zohar specifically is written in this weird Aramaic and then other things are written in different languages. Um, But, yeah, it's... uh, Those interpretations, it's not so much trying to tell you what this text means specifically. It's kind of trying to tell you, yeah, sure, like this text means these things that you're used to learning. Mm -hmm. But also there's a greater universal truth hidden in here. And we're going to talk about that. So that's kind of like an archetype. Yeah, (laughs) like an archetype. (laughs) So that is... The whole, like, so, like, textual tradition is very complicated in Judaism. That is all to say that. Well, I ask that question because, you know, um, a lot of the structure of Western law, obviously, is born out of this, you know. And, of course, um, uh, a lot will give credit to Hammurabi's law, you know, as being a, a, a formal structure of a law, you know, but... Like I said, you know, Western civilization, because we live in Western civilization, kind of emulates this. But um, the reason why I brought that up is because I always wonder about uh, those in in a in an organ or in in a, a culture who are strictly are strictly textual and in, in, in meaning uh, the the text gives you the meaning, like the text means what it says, 
right? And then you have those who say, all right, well, yes, the text lays out a general meaning, but it can be interpreted as such and such and such and such because, you know, as time changes, so to speak, so does the meaning of certain parts of a text. Because I think overall, a law, like thou shall not kill, that's pretty simple. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily. And, it's pretty cut and dry. Because it's w- like, who? Thou shall not kill who? Or like, mm-hmm. where do we get that? It's just people. Well, I mean, in the sense of killing, period. But we need to goes, eat. Goes against, <laughs> you know, well, we're talking about people. But exactly. Yeah. Like, how do we know? Well, this is what I was going to get to, right? That's a good point you just brought up. Because, say, for instance, I'm reading this book by Dr. Ag- I mean, Dr. Agu. Uh, Professor uh, uh, Aguil, I'm in his like reading class, his seminar class, right? And we're reading this book, you know, Moral Practice of Law or something like that. Or is the law, is the law moral? And there's this kid in the book who's very, his name is Hank, and he's a very clever kid, right? His parents told him he has to eat everything on his plate or try everything that is on his plate and then he can eat whatever it is he wants because he has no freaking... <laughs> desire to eat anything outside of what he likes to eat. It's right? like, I'd rather starve. <laughs> right, yeah. So, like, today I have class, and, like, you know, this chapter two, it started out with another story of Hank, and Hank said, well, he had a plate of food, but then a bowl of spaghetti, a pasta, right? Mm-hmm. And his his parents were like, well, you didn't try everything on your plate. He's like, yes, I did. I tried everything on my plate. And they were like, no, you didn't. You didn't eat any of your pasta. He's like, well, the pasta's not on the plate. It's in the bowl. <laughs> clever right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> this kid is crazy i mean like i was like wow that's that's interesting that he you know that his mind picked up on that like there's a difference between the two mm-hmm. now obviously when the parents expressed you know you have to try everything on your plate before you can have your yogurt and whatever it is i forget that he usually just eats for dinner or any meal um they meant you know bowls plates whatever we put in front of you you have to try just means you have to take a bite and try. He doesn't have to finish it. But he textualized it like, no, you said plate. Yeah. And that's not a plate. It's a bowl. That's a bowl. So I don't have to try it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that got me to thinking over the weekend, like, wow, like that's kind of how we are with the law. And then I actually started looking up, you know, different Supreme Court justices. And, you know, within the law itself, there are people who are textualists, and then there are people who like to add interpretation to text you know, the, the textualist part. They'll take the, the law or the amendment, read it as is, and then some will say, no, this is it. Whatever it says is bottom line. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then there are some who say, yes, this is it. However, this falls under it. You know, they add things to it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they kind of fit. So I was just wondering how that works. Mm. In the Jewish community, when they interpret law, are they strictly, strictly textualist, or do they do they they add a moral component to it? Because with the moral component, then comes well, there is always a moral yeah, component. Yeah, comes a lot um, of interpretation with that. Yeah, there is always a moral component with mm. Jewish law. Um, for like textualists, it really depends on like the denomination. Like a lot of people generally consider like the Talmud as authoritative, mm-hmm. and if you are under the belief that the Mishnah is indeed the oral Torah and it was passed down by God at the same exact time as the mm-hmm. written Torah, then you would believe that that text is you know, accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then with the Gemara, you would look at that and that would, depending on how authoritative you view the commentators, you either could view it as they are just sort of, you know, having these discussions, but, like, we don't, we can kind of decide, like, what we think of those discussions, or you could kind of see, see like, what they're talking about and, you know, be, be like the community sort of decides what. There's a lot of, like, emphasis on, like, the community um, mm -hmm. sort of dictating, like, how practice looks. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's part of law as well. Um, and then different denominations have different relationships with different texts. So mm -hmm. like with Orthodox, um, they view the Talmud as authoritative. Whereas if you go up to like Reformed Jews, they don't. They mm -hmm. don't even read it. They don't even view like Halakha as uh, being authoritative at all. Um, Reconstructionists don't view them necessarily as authoritative, but view them as important in order to uh, further the cultural tradition. So, like, there's different relationships to these texts, too, and that will also determine. So, like, each denomination has its own sort of rabbinical body that determines, like, the halakha for that denomination. They have a lot of commonalities on certain things, and then other things are completely different. Like, with the reform, one example is that they, so there's the matrilineal descent, right, that mm -hmm. Jews follow. If right. your mom's Jewish, you're Jewish. With reform, they actually overturned that, and they said, no, if your mom or if your dad is Jewish, you're Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so that caused, like, a huge uproar because mm -hmm. people were like, I don't know then, like, if you're really Jewish or not. So, like, there's a whole thing where, like, if you're very strict about it, you won't marry someone that's a, a Reformed Jew because you don't know if they're actually Jewish according to matrilineal descent mm -hmm. or not. Um, and you, like, would need to see their genealogy. So there's, like, mm -hmm. things like that. I didn't know about that fight. Yeah, it was yeah, a big fight. There's, like, yeah. a lot of, the, like, egalitarianism is also a big mm -hmm. fight. Like, whether or not women can pray with men is, like, a big mm -hmm. uh, topic. Whether or not women can even read from the Torah. Like, there's a lot of these like specific different battles um and that all plays out in like halakha mm -hmm. so it i would say it's there's not really anything like reading a text literally because even if you look at like the textual basis of halakha they're basically just people's opinions for the most part and they're just like viewed as authoritative because I mean, they're obviously very learned people. It's not just some random guy that's like, oh, hey, like, I think they're like <coughs> very um, learned people. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it is their opinion on like what, like, even like with the mitzvot that we have, what are they? Well, we get those from different commentators. And depending on who you specifically follow, I mean, obviously, there's um, people that are generally accepted and like those are the people we follow. But there are all, there are a lot of opinions about it. So like theoretically, you could go and do an opinion that's like not as followed, and still be practicing the same. Because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, that's really what it is. It's people saying this is what I think, and then the community either will agree to it or not agree to it, or they might change their opinions over time and they'll accept a certain authority and then they'll change it to another authority. So it's, it was very complicated like that. There's not really any like. Oh, like, and and also keep in mind, like, all of the halakha, the Talmud, everything, they're basing it off of the text, but I would argue that that basis is always going to be an interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's like that, kind of, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah.
No, I agree. I agree, by the way, but I'll ask the question just because I know that there are people who are like that. And I would always challenge people who are like that to to realize that you're not as 100% a pure textualist as you think because as you read whatever it is you're reading, it could be anything, newspaper, a law, a funnies, you know, your interpretation of it is your interpretation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and guess what? You don't have an infallible interpretation. Yeah. Like none of us do. Yeah, you know, so that to me is the thing that stuck out. And I guess I got that from, you know, reading this week and then it kind of fit into what you just said. So and we didn't even talk about Noah yet. So. I know, yeah. <laughs> but I think this is good because it is. I if like our, improv, you know? Yeah, yeah like yeah. these are good discussions to have, especially as we like yeah, go cause forward. It's like laying the foundation of where one is or where culture or society is today and then you know we kind of like we'll go back we'll go forward you know in that playing of time you'll see there's a common thread that runs through it all which i start to see as i read all this stuff and we've been you know obviously studying a lot to do this show and not just solely relying on what we thought we knew because guess what a lot of the things i thought i knew was imperfect, you know, yeah. wasn't quite, oh, I, I didn't know this. And in doing this show has, has made me realize that I always have to check myself and, like, kind of fact-check yourself. And I say facts loosely with history because I can't say with 100% certainty that everything that we know about history is going to be, like, down to the yeah. grain of saying factually true, Right. We most of our history know because we get a general consensus of this is what this civil this is what yeah. was produced and this is what they said, so we got to go with that and that's just how it is. You know what I mean? And then you you see this this common thread of whatever the thing is running up until even our lives and it'll probably be that way until you know this is all over. So I think that is definitely important to always kind of highlight that along the way. So yeah, let's get into Noah and see what Noah has to say. Yeah, so let's get. <laughs> So first, to contextualize this beautiful period in history, um, as I said, it's uh, around 2500 to 2000 BCE. And uh, since we did get off of the tangent at the Chabad timeline, so I've got to circle back and just say for the dates, um, for Noah's birth, just for context, it's about 2700 BCE, and the flood occurs around 2100 BCE. So a little bit before the time period that we're talking about, and then the flood is right towards the end of it. Um, for some cultural context, the Sumerians that are around, they are moving from their early dynastic period to their Akkadian Empire period, um, which ends around 2200 BCE. Then they go to this Gutian period, um, which lasts about 200 years. And then there's the third dynasty of Ur, which is what <clears throat> that the, when we end, like it's going to be in that period. For the Egyptians, they're moving from the old kingdom period to the new kingdom period. So they're going through like their intermediate periods and they will end uh, at around like 2000 BCE will be the, in their first intermediate period. Um, <clears throat> so for the intermediate Bronze Age, which is like this strange period, like as we transition to from the early Bronze Age to the middle Bronze Age, 
um, which and it's a transition between two urban periods, so two periods with like lots of like city growth. Um, there's during this time, if anyone remembers from the first podcast, um, during this time, Syria actually has its textile boom, so like its textile industry forms. And because of that, a lot of the trade that was taking place in the land sort of fell apart in certain senses because now there was this demand for wool. And so you'll know, you'll see like in the rural or well, not the rural, in the northern part of um, the the land in Israel, um, they form a lot of like agricultural settlements and they're new settlements. So they were are not the same settlements that were around in the early Bronze Age. So they form these agricultural settlements um, and that's what they make their professions on. Interestingly, in the southern part of the region, there are also settlements that form, but they are forming settlements that are predominantly based on like metal trade. So there's these copper ingots that they found. Hopefully I said that right. <laughs> and they um, believe that they were metal traders. So this is all the way, like some of the settlements they found were like all the way into like the Negev. Um, there is this one particular one called Yerucham, the Yerucham area, which is like right sort of in between like this like state steps. I forget how it said, you know, that, that biome. And then in the desert. And they had a lot of these like um, ingots. And now when you say textiles, I think you should tell people what that is. I don't think a lot of people even really think. We hear it sometimes and we think we know what these things mean, but. So, textile. <laughs> if yeah. you think of basically anything that requires wool <laughs> to make, you, that's part of the textile industry. So, like, your clothing, um, rugs. Rugs are were mm -hmm. huge, huge, huge. Um, but, yeah, things like that, like clothing, rugs, um, some elements of some furniture, um, tapestries, like those kind of things all rely on the textile industry. It's basically like the processing of wool and some other elements later on um, to form, you know, these threads that then gets like woven into different, uh, different items. <laughs> Good definition. <laughs> So that is the textile industry. And then also, thank you. <laughs> well, if you're in America, they're like, oh, textile, they might think of literal tiles that you put on the bathroom floor. So oh, true. I think, you know, we're not, uh, <laughs> a lot of history isn't taught the way it used to be. So I think people, you really have to uh, accentuate some of the vocabulary that you yeah, take yeah. for granted that people might know because they really don't know as much. That's you know, true. As much vocabulary like we used to. That's true. And just as a shout out, um, <laughs> the American textile industry, as people may not be super aware of, was predominantly spearheaded by Jewish women. So, yay. Um, <laughs> shout out to that. Um, yeah. And same with early unions, to be honest. But the union history is a little bit more complicated. But. Um, so anyway, so these settlements that were around, they actually stopped being fortified. Like we had talked earlier, there was all these like very strange, like huge, huge, huge fortified settlements. And during this period, they stopped. So I don't know what they were worried about, but clearly not as much anymore. Um, 
I wonder if that's also because maybe the trade, like, <clears throat> instead of, like, trade doing all this, like, in-trading, like, it kind of, like, half went north and half mm. went south. I wonder if that had anything to do with I'm it. sure it is. You know, I don't know. But, um, so they had, and the people that were in the metal trade did not have any kind of, like, animal agriculture or anything like that. Um, then some tomb facts I found. Was that they had shaft tombs and they were mostly located in like caves. Mm. Um, and they were mostly per individual. So, like, if you remember, like, earlier, there was more like larger, like, burial grounds that became less common during this time where it was more like individuals were just buried in certain places and they were scattered the cemeteries. So, they had that during uh, this period of time. Mm. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> so now Any that family we, tombs. No, not no. that I saw. Yeah, it seemed like they were just like individual, like slotted in these like mines, or not mines, but like caves, mm-hmm. and they just called it a day. So like, I'm not a hundred percent sure why, but that changed. Um, mm. And so that's a little context where we get into our beautiful flood story. <laughs> um, which is in just starts in Genesis chapter six. And so just to give some <laughs> context, um, what is going on at this period of time? I'm gonna read a couple sentences and then explain it. So we have Genesis six one. When humankind began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them. The divine being saw how pleasing the human women were and took wives from among those who delighted them. So basically, (laughs) there's these huge angels that are around and they are seeing human women and they are going and they are basically breeding with them. You know, like, (laughs) that's what's going on. And, And so from them, from the women, come these Nephilim, and they are like these giants. They're humongous, and because they apparently take after their fathers, and they are stronger than man, but weaker than angels. And so there's like this kind of corruption, and there's a note that um, people... The reason that things like this started the corruption, but it spreads to like other beings. So there's a note that I forget who specifically said it, but um, animals begin to mate with like other species of animals, but wouldn't mate with their own species. Like that was the thing that was noted. So like it's like widespread corruption. It was a a commentary on six twelve, which is when God saw how corrupt the earth was, for Mm. all flesh had corrupted its its ways on earth. Um, That's interesting take. I never thought about. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of um, commentaries say that, and Mm. I'm like, it makes sense because I always wondered. I'm like, how bad? Because the earth's like not great now, you know. Like I say, all of the earth was corrupted. Yeah, yeah, all of it. So all yeah. flesh have been corrupted. And so, yeah, I was always like, what does that even look like? But I guess it would make sense if you mm-hmm. have a pig going around trying to bang a cow or something, you know, like, yeah. and that's just like, what? that's just what happens. You're like, okay. Like dogs, you know, dogs do that now. But anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Um, 
Now, when you say angels, hmm. right? Um, in the Judaism belief, were these angels good angels, air quotes, or bad angels? Um, so the, and I ask this question because in Christianity, uh, it's believed that these were the angels that were cast out of heaven. Mm. These were the falling angels that were committing these acts. They were still angels because they came from, you know, heaven. But they were, some believe that these were the falling angels. And I wonder what what would be the, the Jewish perspective on this one. So from my understanding, it's less about bad and good. Um, it's more about, like, angels are capable of sinning, obviously. And so they're they're never though like really viewed as good, at least like from what I've I've come to gather. It's more like they're there to sort of help things happen. Like they're like sort of God's helpers, but they're not necessarily like good beings. And so they do different things. And <laughs> they kind of like, like one of the things that like they under, there's like this whole, there's like, oh man, I don't know how to summarize it, but there's like a whole like discussion basically around the Torah, like when it came down to earth um, for humans and like angels kind of were like, well, like, why? Like, why are you giving these people this? Like, this is basically what is used for creation. Like, why do they need to know this? And there's this whole thing. And it was, like, because the human purpose that's described in the Torah is to um, worship God. And, like, angels can't do that, basically. So it's... I would probably have to look at more commentaries on like what these specific angels were viewed as. I mm. don't, I don't know enough about that. But what it seems like is they're not really viewed as good or bad. It's more like they kind of will do specific things, like similarity, like similar, similarly. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. It's a tongue twister, <laughs> but like. Satan is not necessarily viewed as holy bad either, or like Christians see like Satan. Like, well, he would be. Christians would probably group him in that as well because they believe that you know, well, we believe that. Uh, when he took, when he was cast out, he took a third of the angels. That's where that saying came from. Mm. So, and it was believed, it's believed by us that these are the angels that, you know. Were the ones meeting with the daughters of men. Mm, interesting, mm. interesting. Yeah, there's like, um, like for Satan, like he, it's not that he's viewed as bad necessarily. Um, there's not really that concept of him being evil, you know, like in Judaism. It's more like um, he is there for a purpose, and so like these angels would also be there for a purpose, mm. but. I'm nervous about saying anything, I guess, conclusive, just because I know that there's going to be a lot of different takes mm. on, like, what these angels were, why were they there, why did they do mm. this, and, like, all of these things. So I don't want to, like, say, and I haven't looked enough into it, so, like, I don't want to say, like, definitively, like, oh, like, it's this way. Mm. But, like, 
for like the like from my perspective, like um, in Kabbalah, like there's not really a view of evil. Like there's not a belief evil exists, and so it's more like things that are holy, and things that are less holy, mm-hmm. and that's it. Like they're not. They're all like of God. There are just some things that are closer and some things that are farther, but there's not like this oppositional sort of thing. Um, it's interesting you should say that because I have this, for years I've been working on this thing that I see where we see, you know, uh, God's goodness, you know, and I see a distinction between good and perfect, right? Mm. And I started noticing it from reading Genesis 1, uh, where there was a few things where he said, after he created it, and he said, and it was good, right? And there's one instance, I believe, on the third day, and I believe this is the day uh, where something was going on in heaven, and possibly this is this fall, right? He didn't say it was good. He just said, and it was so. Mm. And we'll get into that because I don't want to get off topic, but... I do when you just you just that train of that line of thought is just it's intriguing to me because I kind of believe that there's something to that like you know like God is the only thing that is good and oh what prompted me with this thought by the way was uh, there's a story I believe it is in don't quote me on this Christians but I believe it was on in John where uh, uh, a guy came up to Jesus and was like you know. Uh, good teacher, you know, he started off, that's how he started off the, the question, you know, I don't remember exactly word for word what he asked him, but it was a good teacher when he called him that Jesus, was like, why callest thou me good? There was only one who's good, that is the Father. Mm. So I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, why would he not say he himself is good? Because he was perfect. Mm. Right? If that's what you believe, according to the Christian belief, yeah, yeah. like he was perfect. As a, as a, he was like the only perfect man. So I'm like, why wouldn't he be good if he was perfect? So it was that saying, that one little line, that just, I'm still on it because I don't know what it is, but I see something there. Like there's a difference between God's goodness. Um, and I, I think like if you were in, whatever's in God is good. Obviously, he himself is good. And whatever he creates is perfect. Like we're created perfectly. Mm. You know, we are what he designed us to be. But once we are like out of him, you know, all of his creation is, in my opinion, it's like out of him, but not detached from him, yeah. just out of him, right? And because it is out of him, the best it can be is perfect. It can no longer be good because it's not him, mm. like himself, you know what I mean? And forgive me all those people out there with the gender people, but... I'll just say him because that's what I'm used to saying. So, <laughs> no egalitarian <laughs> God. <in the laughs> yeah, it's like whatever. Like I'm not gonna change that because it's not that big of a deal. Um, but you was talking about God. He's God, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I think that what you just said kind of relates to that. You know, I just, we just, as all of us, with all our different little differences and all that, we we're kind of saying the same thing. We just don't know how to bring it together to like really you know, work it out because it is a difficult thing to work out because no one's ever going to be satisfied because of our own personal beliefs about who he is, mm. you know, so, but yeah, we'll come back to this. This is a good <laughs> thing. I like that. 
<laughs> also because we actually <laughs> are out of time already oh my god so i guess we will put a pin in on everything and we will come back with the story of noah <laughs> next we're still, week we're supposed to talk about noah and we're not talking about everything Listen, it, it like is it important it information, yeah. yeah. That will be definitely. Yeah. Maybe people won't be as stressed out when I start busting out terms yeah. later on in yeah. in, the, in this yeah. podcast. But um, yeah. So thank you everyone who has tuned in today. We also did get a late start, so we did lose like five minutes on that. So that was my fault. But uh, <laughs> thank you for everyone that tuned in with us today. Um, yes, thank you. Next week we're gonna actually go over the story <laughs> of Noah and we will get to it. Um, yeah, and, and I'll bring up some other flood stories that yes. will be mind-blowing to you. Yeah, we're going to investigate yeah. the floods. Yes. And so if you want to follow us and stay in touch, um, you can follow us on Instagram at beyond underscore babble. We also are now available on Apple Podcasts. Um, yeah, okay. so you can follow us on Apple Podcasts. We also have an RSS like station um that those are going to be linked in our instagram uh if you also just want to search us on apple podcasts it's just beyond babble and then the logo that we like throw i mean if you're just listening to this you're not gonna know what i'm talking about but the, we, the logo we throw on uh, wccr uh, every monday is also you'll there will be the same logo oh, on so apple does, that, does that qr code link to all of that stuff or do we have to like is there a way to do all that That qr code links to the wccr page uh, um can you make a qr code that like gives you everything i could yeah, yeah. I, I can <laughs> this is a question for natalia yeah, so we could definitely do a QR code. We have a link tree on our Instagram. We will we'll bust it out. Um, but yes, tune in with us next Monday at 10 a.m. Yes, thank you. And thank you for tuning in. And have a good day, everyone. And you as well, Paul. Thank you. Enjoy some Mata Shahu. Yes. <laughs> bye bye, guys. See you.